Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 89 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Mr. John Broadbent on the show with us today. John has had an extensive career in technology, innovation and continuous improvement. He is one of the leading experts on Industry 4.0, particularly for manufacturing and supply chain excellence. John is an adjunct professor at the University of Tasmania and the founder of Realized Potential, a company focused on helping organizations achieve excellence with the benefits of our latest technologies, helping them learn how to do more with less and create a better future. Let's get into the episode. John, thank you so much for joining us today. G'day, Brad, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, appreciate it, John. John, what was your backstory? Like what significant moments brought you into this space of technology, innovation, helping organizations do more with less? I'm reminded of Gwyneth Paltrow in the movie Sliding Doors, where I, I took a job at the end of biomechanical engineering cadetship in a manufacturing facility, CSR Bradford Installation at the time, and we couldn't afford an electrical resource. We had an electrical contractor who did the sparky stuff, but this was uh, early 80s, just as PLCs were starting to emerge. Um, and I remember a guy coming in from a company called Bell Instruments and he dropped this box on the desk and he said, see that whole panel of relays? This little box is going to replace all that. And old Jack, the sparky mentor of mine, just went, ah, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he showed us how to program ands and ors and something on the little control panel on the top and I was hooked. Um, we started, that was Atachi. Uh, we started buying Atachi PLCs. I love programming. So I started learning how to program PLCs. Uh, Jack would tell me what the process had to do and I'd turn that into code. Um, we ended up getting bigger models of PLCs. Then we ended up uh, investing in the distributed control system, uh, Bailey Network 90, as it was called in those days. Um, and we also uh, then ended up understanding, I met a guy who was really bright, uh, an external contractor, understanding serial communication. So then I wrote a driver, my first ever driver in DOS to talk to a serial port and extract data from the PLC and basically built a little homegrown HMI about 1981, I think it was. Um, So I had had a lot of fun. And I think the the other clincher for me is that when I left CSR in 87, went back out, did various things. Uh, And then 1993, I went back to relocate a factory from Sydney to Kuala Lumpur that I'd been engineering manager of, where I had to reprogram the DCS because no one else knew how to do it six years later. Um, and then I got invited into the factory build team for CSR who were building factories in Southeast Asia. So as a contractor, so in the factory in China in 95, a year long project, I did all the SCADA code, the Wonderware SCADA code. So I had to work closely with the electrical engineers and the PLC guys. But then in 96, they built a Rockwall factory in Southern Thailand. Um, and I was fortunate to be caught into that as well. That was another year-long project, and I wrote every single line of code and every single part of the HMI, so I got to commission effectively all my own work, which is always a great learning experience, and do the entire factory. But at the end of the period there, 
the factory was started up, all the expats pretty well go home. I was asked to stay on for three months as a hand-holding guy to help all the locals with process control. And, and I'd heard about a concept where people had believed that when you're melting molten rock out of a cupola, you can put it onto these spinning tyres and then the spinning tyres spin this wall and it gets collected on the conveyor and it gets sprayed with resin and binder and stuff and goes down the line and they guillotine and cut it and it goes into a pack. The theory had been floating around the world for some time that if you monitored the current on the motors on which the lava was being poured, you could predict the melt rate of the cupola, which is a very difficult thing to do. So I had nothing to do while I was there for that three months. So I said to my boss who was leaving to go back to Australia, hey, can I have a go at this? So I played around, um, took, took motor currents um, and uh, put a mark in the product and walked the product all the way down the end of the line and weighed the product. And so I was looking at kilograms per hour production rates. And I had to do some good jiggery pokery in the PLC to smooth all that data out and sum all the motors because individually they were all over the place. Ironically, what I found is there was a linear regression equation that tied motor current to melt rate. So yeah. I put that in the PLC and said one day to the guys, hey, I want to go to automatic line control because as the coupler melted heavy, you got heavy product at the end of the line that you gave away. And if it melted light, you had underweight product at the end of the line that you had to scrap. So for the first time ever, we had the opportunity to flick the switch and do automatic line speed control based on this predictive current usage in the motors, which were predicting the melt rate of the coupler. And yeah. it worked like an absolute Swiss watch. And I went, I'm hooked from now what, on. I, what year was that, John? Because that's such an early 96. example of using like industry yeah, 4.0 style thinking in 1996. Yeah, smart factory in, back in those days. Wow. And then I got involved in other projects, integrating ERP to factory floor for nearly 20 years. Um, and I absolutely love the work because being able to understand how to get data from a factory floor because of my process control experience and engineering experience, but then knowing what to do with that data at the MES, manufacturing execution system level, but then integrate that into ERP and, and make that data exchange vertical integration seamless was really pioneering work. Um, and I worked in the SAP space as an industry, sorry, as a manufacturing integration practice manager for an SAP partner as a contractor to that, to run their practice for them as a part-time gig for nearly, nearly 10 years. Yeah, that's awesome. But, I know I was involved in manufacturing back in the late 90s too, and there was so much disconnect from your data all sitting up there in SAP or whatever it may be, and the factory's totally disconnected. Well, SAP acquired a product in 2005 that I brought into Australia as a distributor. SAP bought the company, so I lost my distributorship, even though I had a pipeline and product to sell. And SAP Australia now had a product they knew nothing about and a product in their pipeline. So I got an introduction from the United States guys that got purchased. said, look, can you introduce me to SAP Australia? And they did, so I went and knocked on their door at 168 Walker Street, North Sydney, <laughs> and met the COO at the time and said, I've got a deal for you. I'll go out and help your account executive sell product as long as I get the services work. Yeah, that's so the... we did. We did, you know, BHP and Rio and Tom and Aluminium and Kellogg's and Frucor and Coke and all like great jobs. Parmalat, you know, incredible projects to integrate SAP with Factory Four and all in real time. And then I discover Industry Four Point Oh in sort of twenty seventeen and going, shit, we've been doing this for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's what's new? And what's new? John, and John, what's the key to it? So you know, I, I I know you've got such a history in this space of 
you know, integration and technology. And now there's a term for it, which is industry 4.0 and everything that goes with it. But what would you say, mate, is the secret to truly getting results and achieving excellence in an organization when you're trying to use this technology approach to do it? A lot of organizations get stuck because it they try to come up with ideas and projects, what I call bottom-up. And I can absolutely say hand on heart, if you're an organization that wants to drive an industry for or a digital transformation initiative in manufacturing from the bottom up, stop now. <laughs> All that will happen is you'll come up with a great idea. You'll be given maybe a little bit of money. You'll get in and you'll end up running a little pilot and that's where it'll stop. And there's an enormous amount of organizations that are stuck in what's called pilot purgatory that nothing ever gets to a sort of the proper commercialization phase, that all the successful jobs that I've had have been the other way. The Coke factory in Eastern uh, Creek in Sydney was built in 2011. We came in right at the beginning. We spoke with the senior leadership, the CIOs, et cetera. What do you want to achieve here? We want a smart factory. And we went top down. Um, the Beacon Johnston uh, ready mill plant, purpose-built ready mill plant in 2015. It wasn't SAP. It was a different ERP. Uh, we got in right at the beginning. What do you want to do? They told us we mapped out the ecosystem systematically, what it would look like from a solution architecture point of view with a homegrown or bespoke manufacturing execution system in the middle as a manufacturing integration hub. And then we went on the job for uh, nearly six months. Um, interestingly enough, in both those cases, I've now got a good idea that the smart factory implementation budget for a greenfield like that is between one and one and a half percent, which isn't much when you consider the cost of, you know, a $60 million factory. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, big and, extensive factory. And yet the benefits of, of real-time information, total visibility of what's going on in the factory, traceability, genealogy, everything that, that happens in the factory that opens and shuts is recorded in a process historian. So you know exactly what's going on and you can mine that data later. So digital transformation, while it's a whole of business affair, you know, includes marketing and sales and HR and payroll and all that sort of stuff and probably ERP as well, the, the manufacturing piece of it can be done in piecemeal approach. You start somewhere, but the direction, support, resources, budget, money, time, you know, has to come from the, the leadership of the organisation. If yeah. the leadership's not committed, you're going to struggle. So, John, it sounds to me like you're saying that for a smart factory, having that top-down vision to get the infrastructure and the structures behind it and get it, I'm guessing, getting it all harmonious so there's a common platform and it's not an absolute mess. Dog's breakfast. Dog's breakfast <laughs> is the word in Australia and yep. maybe around the world, I don't know, sorry. And then you've got this data and this information that can then be mined and used and implemented to run different continuous improvement execution requirements bottom-up. So it sounds like yes. there's blending of top down to get the framework and the infrastructure that's all harmonious and connected and clean. And then you get this power of data and information that you can then get this bottom up improvement going. Well, the top down is not necessarily the infrastructure piece. The top down is the, is the commitment. It is a single question. I'll come to this in a minute. Remind me to come back to this when we talk about platforms and why they're not selling as well as the vendors would like them to. The first question as an organization I believe you have to ask is, do we want to be best in class? It's as simple as that. If the answer is no, well, don't go down the digital transformation path. 
Yeah. But if you do want to invest in class, the next question then is, well, do you actually know what that looks like? Because a lot of organisations, as you and I know, have um, longevity of service. They have people, great head ceiling, my generation, often in the way who say, no, we've always done it this way and industry four is just a fad and we're not going to go down that path and I've only got five years to coast to retirement. I'm not going to rock the boat. Um, I actually got a project stopped in a senior major public company uh, and the job was actually stopped by a guy who basically ended the project because he didn't want the threat of us doing more because then he wouldn't have a job and he was only five years from retiring and he didn't want to be made redundant. So he stopped the project to protect his own backside from any superannuation phone. It's like, wow. Yeah, it can be big, can't it? <laughs> Go to enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to get hold of the Global Lighthouse Project on Industry 4.0 and Technology and Operations link. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. Let's get back to the episode. Giles, I am thinking about this this morning that, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of companies. I know a lot of companies and deploying agile, lean, continuous improvement, excellence journey. You can do it in piecemeal. You can do a bit there and a bit there and a bit there and a bit somewhere else and you'll be good, hmm. you know, but if you want to be great, that requires really commitment from the top, but also a planned, measurable, structured approach that you can actually track. Are we getting better and 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 move your way forward? It sounds very similar to what you're saying that, okay, do we want to be best in class? Well, that takes a coordinated company-wide thought, planning and approach to actually take that journey. And also it requires, I'm guessing, removement of roadblocks and challenges that can be there or old systems that need to be rather than trying to piecemeal and especially uh, i get a bit cheeky when i do some of my keynotes and i i put you know it and ot um and i say sorry guys but you've got to kiss and make up and recognize that you all work for the same company um and often see it companies as the tail wagging the dog um if there are any it people out there listening to this in manufacturing world or manufacturing people in the operational space i have a uh a purpose statement for IT, and it's to deliver stability because that's their job is to make sure that all the systems work as they're supposed to. So the cybersecurity, the networks, the firewalls, the managed switches, Wi-Fi, LANs, all that sort of stuff, that's their job is to deliver stability. But it's also IT's role, I see, is to enable innovation. That is, don't get in the way of manufacturing people who want to do some good stuff around machine learning or AI or data collection or data lakes or process historians or whatever it is, enable them by supplying them with the security and the infrastructure on which they can then install and maintain this stuff. Sure, have your policies and your governance and all that, but don't get in the way. Yeah, that's neat. And that then creates that bottom-up journey within a structure and framework that enables, I guess, flow and speed and agility? Well, I saw this um, data pyramid the other day. It was a, a new model that I hadn't seen that I've now included in, in, in one of my keynotes. And it's at the bottom layer, you have, you know, the sensors, the data acquisition piece, and then you have the transition piece where you now turn that into useful information. So you give, you know, a temperature or context by saying, well, what should it be? So now you understand what that is. And then in the middle of, of this pyramid, there's a, there's a layer which is often missing which is the um, stewardship and governance layer. And then you have the reporting on that 
which is the business intelligence piece, and then the icing at the top of the cake, you know, top of the pyramid, is the uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence space, which needs all that in place. But I don't know about you, Brad, but I've been to many organisations where the ERP system has a master data team that have governance. They move and transport their ERP implementations through development, then test, then into production. Uh, you never play with the production system, et cetera. But in manufacturing, we don't have test factories or development factories. So we, we often work and tinker in the production space. But the amount of organisations that are collecting data for data's sake, and there is no person or entity in the organisation responsible and accountable for the stewardship of the automation stack itself. And being an ex-automation engineer, automation engineers are not necessarily the best people to apply the rigour for that governance. If you're going to collect data from the edge, what's it being collected for? What's its purpose? Where's it going to end up? Who's going to be the consumer? Who's going to own that when that value goes offline? Who even notices? And especially too, John, where you think about a company, where do you actually create value? You know, do you create value up in the ERP or are you creating value for customers down on the front line in the, in the factory, you know, mm. with the sales team? Like, it's that part of the business that really counts. That's the bit that you need to be slick. And a classic case is an organization that I helped that already is a smart factory. They went out and bought a state-of-the-art production line from overseas, came in $14 million worth, implemented that line. The integration budget to integrate that line into the existing smart factory network, which already had MES and OEE, and all that sort of stuff in place was zero. So, right. so project bought and implemented the line and got it running. That ticked their job done. IT didn't have anything to do because it wasn't connected to the network. So even though they'd asked, is there any IT requirements here in the project? Went, no, 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 we don't need to worry about IT. There's no IP addresses on this thing. There turned out to be 60. Um, the engineering team's job is now to maintain the asset. That's their job. And the operational team is now to run the asset and get the best out of it, but they're now flying blind. So none of those silos, IT projects, engineering and operations, have any jurisdiction to go, well, who's, who's responsible and accountable for the governance and the integration piece? So I stepped into that role briefly and worked for nearly six months on and off with the vendor who was overseas to get data collected inside the Siemens PLC system, a data block created that contained all the data that we needed and reset at the start of runs and shifts and all that sort of stuff so that the already existing systems in the factory could mine that. <laughs> when they went to connect, you love this one, when they went to connect the main switch from the um, um, machine to the factory network, the guys from Italy had actually used the exact same subnet as, as the factory, we didn't know. And when we connected it, we suddenly had all the duplicate ID, IP addresses. So we pulled down the entire factory. It's like, oh, wow. God, no. And so we went back to the challenge and said, look, you need to change your IP address range. And they said, oh, we can't do that. We've got all our BSDs, all our remote IO. It's all, we had to come back and recommission the machine because it was the same damn subnet. So we had to put a, a network address translator and then a T box in between our IT network and their network so they can maintain their you know, their IP address range and do this network translation yeah. just to get it to work. But all that could have been avoided had there been a conversation at the start. Go, Guys, we want to embed this 
and integrated into our existing smart factory network. Yeah, it's part of that main project. I guess there's yeah. a way of thinking there, isn't there, that it's, it's okay, we want a smart factory. What does that look like? John, on a, if, if I'm with a company where I've got a disconnected factory where there's bits and pieces of stuff all over the place or I'm in a company where really I don't have any essence of smart factory at the moment, mm-hmm. what would you say are the key steps to start to head towards that and actually introduce elements like Industry 4.0? So I call it the three buckets model, um, the green, the blue, and the red. The green bucket is what have you already got on the factory floor from which you can get information? Do you have a controller, a PLC? It's got an Ethernet port on it. Effectively, all you have to do is connect it up to a network and mine data. That's the easy stuff to do. Or it might already be connected to a SCADA system, but you're just not mining that data for higher level systems. The blue bucket is you've got an older model PLC um, and for you know not much money, if a few grand perhaps, you could go around your plant and put in serial to Ethernet converters and then connect it to the network. Or you could put, you, you might have an old controller that doesn't have a network card that's Ethernet enabled, so you buy an Ethernet card for a couple of K and you stick that in. That's sort of the blue bucket model. The red bucket model is CapEx or OpEx. So you now have a machine that's 25 years old. It's got a proprietary controller on it. It's no longer supported. You've actually got a ticking time bomb sitting in your production environment because when it fails, and it will, uh, you're going to get caught short. Um, So then you've got to invest CapEx. But if you segregate what you want to collect, how you want to collect it and understand what you have to work with, that's the first step of the process because if you have the green and blue bucket models, is 80% of your data, happy days. Yeah, and it's not. that seems like a really simple approach, isn't it? It's like go to Gemba, go look look for the green, the blue, and then understand the red. Yeah. That's that's neat. That really simplifies it. What would be Cause next? The red, sorry, because the red then also tells you what your CapEx forecast might look like in terms, and then you do a value assessment. You go, well, if I get this data, it's going to cost me 50K to do it, but, but I'm going to get a return on that investment. Neat. That's awesome. So through that process, the green, the blue, the red bucket, you've got then a picture of your factory. What would be the next step once you've got that picture of the factory and then also an understanding of what the cap- capital may be for the uh, red bucket? Do some research in your organisation about who's using what spreadsheets. I have challenged a few companies lately to do a spreadsheet audit and much to their horror, they find there are hundreds and hundreds. That's the other MES, by the way, many Excel spreadsheets. Um, or it should be MEWS. They find... Uh, they find that there's just hundreds of spreadsheets through their organisation and people are manipulating and copying data from place to place. It's so inefficient and error-prone. Yeah. Um, so what you need to do then is go, well, okay, you're an operations uh, manager in a factory. Tell me, and I do the vision idea, you come to work in five years' time, all your wishes have come true, you walk into the factory, what do you see, what do you smell, what do you taste, what's the sound like of, you know, uh, of the place that's running like a Swiss watch? But what do you see on the wall? I see a dashboard. What's on the dashboard? Well, I can see my OEE. I can see the best runs. I can see how much product we've made. I can see our attainment. Are we ahead of plan, behind plan? I can see my labour utilisation sitting in the green so I don't have to worry about it. You know, that sort of what does the operations manager need to see as seven habits of highly effective people, you know, begin with the end in mind, and then work backwards from there, lock up a dashboard and say, well, okay, this is the information we need to put on the dashboard. Um, what out of our green, blue, and red bucket model, what do we already have? 
So the food company I mentioned that we helped build in 2015 want to do a dashboard. And when I actually did this process with their ops manager and head of manufacturing, 80% of the data they wanted on the dashboard was already in, in, already there to be mined. Yeah, that's neat. John, this is so simple. I've got to admit, mate, when we lined up this episode, I didn't expect the simplicity of process here, but I know that's the way you roll. So like, if you look at it, do the bucket review, you know your current state. Do the spreadsheet audit and maybe calculate the time that you're wasting and the errors that are coming out of this. What do you call it? Many Excel spreadsheets? Many Excel spreadsheets, but also the latency, Brad, because by the time we get this information, it's a lag measure. It's an output-based measure that's often days or weeks old or end of month, God forbid, you know, 30 days old. Mm. And, And the sad part is the analogy I like to use is imagine driving your car with no dashboard, the windows are blacked out, you're using your rear view mirror to drive and it's where you were last week and you've got the managing director in the passenger seat asking, are we there yet? <laughs> but how common would that be? <laughs> like, you, you just, in a just factory, go, it's very common. Very common. <laughs> you so, never drive your car like that. I think there's there's a massive ROI there in that spreadsheet audit because it, I'm sure there'd be some money there based Huge. on return on investment. And then the third, I love it, mate. I love it because you're talking, okay, so what are you going to see? Because ultimately that's what's going to drive behavior is what are you going to see and then lead? And then you're taking this minimal viable product approach where you're not actually cutting it and integrating it. You're just giving them a mock-up printout or something that says here, is this the data? Is this what you want to look like? It's like an iterative approach, an agile iterative approach of creating that. And then off you go. It's basically then running the project, I'm guessing. And ironically, if you, we now know a decade on because industry 4.0 turned 10, 2021. Um, there is a well-known now maturity path where once you close out industry 3.0, which is connectivity and computerization, so you've got to be able to get the data from computerized systems, PLCs, et cetera. You've got to have it connected so you can extract it. That could be Wi-Fi. It doesn't have to be a network as such, you know, a LAN physically wired. Um, You then start the industry 4 journey, and the industry 4 journey is the first phase is seeing, second phase is understanding. So seeing, speedo in your car, I'm doing 60 kilometres an hour, whoop-de-doo. Understanding, I'm in a 40 school zone, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm on 110 motorway, I'm still in trouble, but for different reasons. <laughs> um, third phase is the um, uh, predictability. I now know because I'm doing 60 in a 40 zone, <laughs> I'm going to get a ticket. Um, and then the final stage is adaptability, which is, which is being able to optimise the process. And I'll, I'll give you a, a really simple classic example. Many food producers have check weighers at the end of their line it's an island it just sits there doing its job rejecting overweight underweight and if it got metal detectors you know uh, metal product suspect product at the end of some period of time someone's collected information and they've got a number of packs out and you know days or whatever later they look at the yield of blah 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 if you could get so you've already got a piece of kit that's computerized and connected if you could get that check wire on your network and use a third-party tool, for example, to mine pack weights, you can now see in real time what each of those pack weights is coming up in your network. If you connect that to an MES or an ERP and you can pull out the standard weight, you now know context. So a 490-gram product with a 500-gram standard is within tolerance, so, okay, I can now start plotting those weights. I can now implement an SPC chart using a proper sampling regime, and I can now work out whether my process is in control. 
as I'm watching the SPC chart, I see values start to climb. So once I get four values outside my mean and I'm heading up towards my upper control limit, the system can send me an email and say, hey, you're about to go out of spec making heavy product, go and adjust the filler. That's the third phase of industry four, which is the predictive piece. You know you're heading out of spec. And then the final phase is, well, why not now trust the check layer or, th or through the control system that, that, that takes the data from the check layer to monitor that process and then automatically adjust the upstream filler slightly down so you're not making overweight product and then wait for a time, watch the SPC. So that's now adapting, adapting and predicting and optimizing the process untouched by human hand. And that's really applying industry for maturity over a simple process. It doesn't have to be done over the whole factory. It could be done at the asset level of a check layer, for example. Yeah. And the thing I love about it too, John, it's, it's error proofing or it's pokey because it's all, all that live data in time you can have the right alerts right actions happening off of that which i know you and i've been involved in before using barcoding technology rfid technology vision technology mm -hmm. like the all of a sudden you've got this plethora of capability but i love those stages that you said is like first of all you got to see it second you got to understand it so it's got to make sense then you can bring in predictability using these connected devices and from that you can then adapt it's it bolts a lot to you know a lot of the guests we've had on the show of Agile, which is the pillars are transparency, inspection, adaption. Like mm, exactly. if, you, if you can't see it and you don't inspect it or a bit of technology is not ins inspecting it using industry 4.0 style thinking, how can you adapt? Yeah. You're going to be adapting in latency down the track. And, you know, looking over industry 4.0 and its evolution and how it all started in 2011, why I'm excited about this whole space is that back in 96, when we built that factory in Thailand, the network was RG58 coax because I remember crimping the bloody lugs on the end of all the cable and running around the factory. Ethernet was you know, very novel for PLCs back then. And trying to move data around systems, we were running the factory on Windows 95. Um, you know, it wasn't easy. These days, the three underpinning technologies, I guess you'd call them, that have converged, that have created Industry 4.0 that I'm excited about is cyber physical systems, so that's things like SCADAs, HMIs, the ability to see what's going on in the process below it. So where we as humans interact with the, you know, the cyber world, um, it's the use of cloud computing, which has now become so ubiquitous that we don't have a second thought about Dropbox or OneDrive or Google Drive or where we put our photos, or the fact that we use services on our mobile phones. And we don't care whether that server that we're hitting is in the cloud or on-premise. And the third is the industrial internet of things, which is the ability to enable the edge with smart instruments, smart transmitters, PLCs, robots, cameras, whatever it is. But it's the convergence of those three and the bandwidth opportunities that are now um, open to us to collect huge amounts of information and don't drink, and don't drink from the fire hose. You know, be mindful of what we collect, less is best. But it means we can put that information in data lakes and we can now let the machine learning algorithms loose on that information and find stuff that we as human beings would normally not be able to find. No, but John, I love to, even if we go back to the previous three points you're talking about, you know, once you've gone through the bucket process, you've done your spreadsheet audit, and then you're creating your vision of what you need to know. You, it's, you're really putting minimal time and effort into you get to that point and then you can really own it. Like it's, it's a brilliant model, mate. And it's simple. What a great episode. Remember, you can go to our website, 
enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to get hold of the links to the Global Lighthouse Project on Industry 4.0 and technology and operations. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. Let's end this episode and cover more about Industry 4.0 in part two. Thanks for a great episode, John. Thanks for helping us create a better future. We'll chat again next week. Bye for now.